Hi, this is Eric Zandona, Spirits author and director of Spirits Information for the American Distilling Institute, and you're listening to the Beer Mighty Things podcast. Welcome into the Beer Mighty Things podcast. It's what you listen to while you brew. And if you distill a spirit, you need to hear it. Today, I'm bringing in the guy who you want to have a distilled spirit with. Uh, he's a spirits aficionado, and he's searching for the world's best drinks and what makes them extraordinary. He uh, moved from San Fran. He's now coming to us live from the Florida Panhandle. As mentioned here, he's the director of spirits uh, information, ADI, American Distilling Institute. His name is Eric Zandona. Eric, welcome in. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. How are you? Good? I'm good. Yeah, good. Uh, things are starting to cool down here in Florida. A little rainy, but, you yeah. know. Are you adjusting to, is it, you know, you went from out west to now down south, and is it is it the humidity? Like, is that an adjustment? Um, I've spent some time in uh, Missouri and during the summertime, so experienced quite a bit of heat and humidity. So it's not too different from that. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, it's just different, you know, I'm used to more, you know, less, less humidity, cooler climate overall. And so, but it's not bad. Not bad yeah. by any means. Just, right. different. just different. Same, same wardrobe though. It's not like you had to really change up your clothing. Yeah, no, no, no shopping. Yeah, still, you know, t-shirts and, Jeans kind of weather. Very good. And whiskey and tequila. and <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. When it's, when it's hot, you know, you, you get a nice cool drink. It works both places. I love it. It's uh, very versatile uh, beverages, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us here. Uh, you got a lot of things going on. So if you give us, you know, give the listeners kind of a quick rundown of who you are and what you do. Yeah, so um, I work for the American Distilling Institute, and I uh, run their annual spirits competition, the Judging of Craft Spirits, and also do a number of other things for them. And in addition to that, I also uh, am a spirits writer and spirits judge. So I have a website called easydrinking.com, so it's my initials, E-N-Z, drinking.com. And then I uh, have some books uh, that have been published about distilled spirits. So I've written a couple of books about whiskey, and I wrote a dictionary about uh, tequila and mezcal. Um, and uh, like I said, I also uh, judge for some other competitions as well as run the one for ADI. So done Whiskies of the World and IWSC out in London. Um, so yeah, all things spirits. I'm a big fan. So you're not busy at all. You have tons of free time. Yeah, lots of free time. You know, I have a regular job, have some side hustles, and then also a wife and kids. So, you know, easy going. Easy drinking. Yeah. I didn't actually uh, put together the fact that easydrinking.com, those were your initials. I don't know why I didn't figure that out, but uh, thanks for pointing that out. Obviously, if yes. you don't do that, some people could end up at the wrong website. But um, <laughs> Right, right. You know, uh, that's... Very clever of you. Well done. Cool. Um, talk to me about the, the newest launch, right? I think it was uh, yesterday, um, the 5th yeah. of, of October. So you, this is not your first book. Um, tell, tell the folks you know, what you put out, um, what you're excited about here. 
Yeah. So yesterday was the official launch of uh, my newest book called The Atlas of Bourbon and American Whiskey. And uh, it's I think it's going to be really interesting. I think people are going to really enjoy it. But uh, because it's in a sort of atlas format, each chapter focuses in on a, a regional style of American whiskey. And while, you know, on the technical side, the U.S. law says that any style of whiskey can be made in any state, each state's or different states now are starting to specialize some. So we have the obvious ones like Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey. But then there are some older styles that are starting to be revived. And then there's some new definitions of new styles that are being created by various states and groups. So I have things like Pennsylvania rye and Maryland rye, which were old categories that are coming back. And then newer things like Empire rye from New York or Missouri bourbon, uh, which was a state law passed a year or two ago uh, to create a new definition for that. So things like that. So, and then I, and then I kind of explore some broader regions. So uh, American single malt from the Pacific Northwest, again, American single malt to be made anywhere in the U S but there were some of the early adopters. And I think some of what they're doing is interesting on a regional perspective. And then smoked whiskey is from the Southern U S so broadly Southern, not just Southeast. So um, anyway, a lot of fun information in there and highlight, you know, some of the distilleries that are in those regions and what they're making, what, what's worth tasting. It's not exhaustive, but it gives you a good overview of some of the interesting things happening on a regional level. It's funny. I, you know, I really enjoy reading. I, I try to read, you know, I do 10 pages in the morning, try to do 10 pages at night, but I always tend to fall asleep around page four to six. Um, But I just did the math. It was like, if I do 10 pages a day times 30 days while I read 300 pages a month, which is, you know, typically more than most books. So you read more than a book Mm -hmm. a month. Um, And I've recently discovered just, some of these books about booze and history, uh, as you can see behind me, you know, the history of the world in six glasses, mm-hmm. just these different books that take you on these different adventures of a time period and what was going on in the nation and the world and, and around you and why it happened and how it was found. It's just, it's fascinating. It's so much, you know, it's so much better than reading like a professional development book. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just a different animal. So, you know, I enjoy reading those styles of books now as I, as I find more and more, but I noticed that you on your website or on distiller.com, right? Which is, is that ADI's website or? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, you do a lot of reviews. Yeah. Yeah. So on, uh, I do spirit reviews on my website and then some of the, what I write post to distiller magazine, which is a uh, digital publication that ADI has. And so some gotcha. of that stuff ends up there. So, you know, you're sitting down, you're, you're doing us a big favor because you're, you're going through these different books, um, breaking them down and giving us a review, you know, kind of by month, mm-hmm. which is really cool. So I think that's really neat. You know, I think that sometimes there's books that you're like, ah, should I get it? Should I not? Um, and this way, I think you kind of take the guesswork out of it. You give us a review and say, all right, you know what? I'm in, I'm buying this book. This is pretty sweet. So, yeah. Um, Definitely cool to see that. Appreciate that resource. Talk to mm-hmm. me a little bit about your writing process. Like, how do you, you know, there's, there's so many different angles, as you just mentioned, um, different locations, different styles, those sorts of things. 
Like, how do you structure a book? You know, you have so much information. How do you kind of dial it in? Yeah. So the, the last three books that I've written, um, have been commissioned by the publisher. So they come to me, they know my skill sets, they know my background and knowledge, and they uh, come to me usually with an idea, like with a kernel, like, like with the first book, The Bourbon Bible. They wanted to have a sort of, you know, a broad overview of bourbons being made in America. And, you know, and I was like, easy, I can do that. I know a ton of the craft distillers because of my job with the with ADI and the judging. Um, I have direct contact with a lot of them. I've tasted their stuff. I kind of have a good sense of, you know, what ones that are worth highlighting. And uh, and then the, the big company, you know, bourbons are easy to get a hold of. And so it just starts from there, just creating lists of, you know, who, who to include and kind of fleshing that out. And then slowly... You know, just doing the work of writing the tasting notes and finding information out about the distilleries and finding out, you know, you during that process, finding, you know, these fun little anecdotes and interesting tidbits, you know, and, you know, little things about how, like, you know, Jack Daniels, for some reason, from like the 1970s to the early 2000s, slowly dropped its proof down to 40 percent, you know, or down to 80 40 percent mm-hmm. ABV and there's no real good reason that anyone can see but you're like hmm. well it does save them a lot of money if they're selling a bottle of 40 percent ABV you know uh, liquor versus you know 45 well it yeah. just you know yeah. save you know a bunch of money and so um the little thing you know little tidbits here and there about different uh different parts and so you just kind of for me it's like I work really well and taking a big subject and just breaking it down in little compartments, you know, like here's this one thing done. Here's the next one thing done. And the same was also true for the dictionary, you know, the big project, you know, the big tequila dictionary. Yeah. The tequila dictionary was just creating what are the list of terms that I want to, you know, explore and kind of thinking about different aspects of, tequila making production side cocktails ingredients environmental factors all sorts you know kind of have these broad categories start filling in words that kind of fall under that and then just doing the work of you know creating the definitions and and you know and then you have some fun things like i had an entry in there about uh music or songs that talk about tequila there's a lot of music out there, a lot in the country western space about sure. tequila, huh. which is which is interesting. And a lot of the songs talk about people drinking tequila and making bad choices. <laughs> and and to me, I, I you know personally, I really love tequila and mezcal, yeah. and so I take a little bit of offense to that because I'm like not the tequila. I think it's you that's making the bad choice. It's not the tequila causing you to take it back to your boyfriend's car. Right. So, <laughs> so anyway, it's like funny little anecdotes. of so stuff like that. Well, the funny thing about tequila, I recently learned from, uh, you know, a friend of mine works at the distillery here in Pennsylvania. And he had said that, you know, obviously 
no, almost 99% of alcoholic drinks are depressants, whereas the agave plant is actually a stimulant. And then, you know, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that might be why these people are making wacky decisions when they're out there drinking tequila, because instead of putting them to sleep, it, it energizes them. Well, you know, I, I don't know that there's any real like scientific basis for that, but I will say that for some reason, somehow different alcohols affect different people differently. Absolutely. So you, you hear people talk about this with like gin or with vodka. Gin makes me goofy. Right. I think that, I think the G and gin stands for goofy. I don't know if it's the juniper root in there, but, uh, the gin gin right. for me makes me goofy. It's fun. So, you know, so I don't know what that is. You know, that is a really kind of complex biochemistry kind of thing that happens yeah. with individuals. But there is something that I think is real that different bodies in the way they're metabolizing the different congeners and esters and whatever that's in it's not just alcohol and water. There's all sorts of that other stuff that gives it its different flavors. Like all that other stuff does something to different people in different ways. Somehow it's chemical. I don't know what, right. Yeah. What is that? So you just said a word there. I'm really not familiar with and sorry to interrupt you, but what is a congener? Uh, Congeners are just uh, things that they're like flavor compounds that get created usually during fermentation. Okay. along with okay. esters as well. So those are just things that end up passing through the distillation process during from fermentation. Okay. Um, they help create flavor. So. Perfect. Hey, this is an educational podcast, man. We're just, we're learning, baby. We're learning. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so anyway, like the new book, you know, I approached in a similar way. It's like, okay, the first step is like thinking what regional styles or whiskeys do I highlight? You know, again, there were some obvious ones like Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey, but then there was this kind of open, you know, uh, field before me to choose from. And so I looked at, you know, a couple of things where like Missouri created a law to create a definition. So I wanted to look at that, but then like in Texas and in New York, there are associations that, basically decided to create a uh, uh, trademark mm. that they control. And then if you follow certain rules, you can use that trademark uh, to promote your product as like a group. Okay. So it's not a law, but it's a privately held trademark. But anyway, so those are kind of like interesting things. And so I think those are kind of models of how like other regions uh, or other groups of distillers can move forward. Some might choose to, create a legal definition for a particular style of whiskey, say like in Colorado or in Minnesota, but then other places, maybe like the Pacific Northwest, right? Because then since that sort of expands over three states, maybe, you know, in the future, a group of distillers will decide to create a sort of regional definition and this trademark definition, right? Interesting. But, you know, who knows, right? So I think to me personally, that's sort of an interesting on the technical side, a way that different groups of distillers have approached this. Um, But related to that, like I'm excited because it seems like there's really good uh, with high certainty that American single malt is going to get a legal definition at the TTB level for labeling. 
Um, so I think that's going to be really good for the industry overall going forward. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen a lot of different, there's a lot of regulation on the labeling and, and what's done where and how you label things. So kind of going back to the beginning of that sort of thing, was that created, is that almost like a, from a taxation purpose, would it have to deal with money? Like it has to say this, you can't cross state lines because we want our money or we want this or like, how do you know how any of those like laws kind of came about? Yeah. So <clears throat> the first labeling law for any food was for whiskey and for brandy, the bottled okay. and bond out in 1897. Right. And that's hundred hundred proof. Yeah. Yeah. So that was okay. the first ever consumer protection act. And basically all the labeling laws that we have boil down to the fact that the government is trying to ensure that when the public is buying something, they're getting what they think they're buying. And so it started in 1897 with Bottled and Bond, which basically said, like, if you're a distiller and you're making whiskey and you've made it in this certain way, you've aged it for four years and you've bottled it at 50 percent alcohol, we, the government, will will guarantee that you made that product exactly to the specifications. And so when somebody picks a bottle up off the shelf and they see the tax stamp over the label and over the bottle, you know, neck and all, yeah. over, over the closure, and it says bottled and bond, the public knows like this is exactly what it says it is because the government has guaranteed it. And they guaranteed it in part because they sent tax like revenue men to the distilleries and held the keys of the barrel warehouses. The barrels couldn't move in and out of the, the warehouses unless a government re representative was there. You know, mm -hmm. later those rules changed, and today we don't have tax men at every distillery in the country. Um, but those sort of things, you know, pers you know, uh, those guarantees essentially kind of continue. And so, and then things changed, and there was this fight in the turn of the 20th century between you know the, what what people refer to as the straight whiskey men who are largely in Kentucky and Tennessee and some in Pennsylvania who were trying to sell real whiskey what we would consider whiskey and the rectifiers the people who would buy maybe bulk whiskey or just buy neutral spirit and then adulterate it with all sorts of stuff and then sell it off as whiskey because it mm. was really profitable and um, and so that fight between these two groups uh, basically kind of came to create the definitions that we have today for bourbon and rye whiskey. And um, so there's this famous sort of thing about during the Teddy Roosevelt administration, there was this long drawn out battle about what, how are we going to define whiskey? And there was this group that wanted to create a really scientific definition but then eventually it came down to a more simplified thing of like, what ingredients are you using? What percentage ABV, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of generated the definition of bourbon that we have today in that, like it has to be majority corn has to be aged in barrels and some other thing. And then okay. slowly over time, after prohibition, new things were added, like new charred barrels. It wasn't, always the case that bourbon had to be aged in new barrels 
that was a depression era addition mm. to help employ Coopers by and large. Yeah. And so, you know, just things like that, fully things get added on. And so that's sort of where those definitions sort of came from, partly out of tradition, partly out of trying to protect consumer interests, partly out of commerce. So anyway, so that, you know, those stories get told in the book and, and other places. That's awesome. Very cool. Uh, can you break down for me personally, the spelling of whiskey EY versus just Y? Yeah. So I have a whole long series on my uh, website about the spelling of whiskey Okay. because uh, around 2011, 2012, there was this big controversy at the New York, New York times and they were writing about something related to whiskey and they were using the traditional American spelling with the E and all of these Scotch aficionados got offended because Scotch shouldn't be spelled with an E. And, and so that created this whole like thing. And for a while, there was a lot of people writing about like how whiskey should or shouldn't be spelled. Huh. And so I, me, I have a history background. And so my initial thought was to dive into primary sources and to do some other research. And what I basically found is that English is like a very malleable and adaptive language. Yeah. And before we had dictionaries, we had like, cause that's one thing that you don't think about often is that a dictionary is a modern invention of the like 18th century. Before that people didn't really have dictionaries that said, this is how you spell a word and this is what it means. Uh-huh. And yeah. so because of that, the word whiskey developed in this time where lots of words had multiple spellings. So one was spelled with an E and one was spelled without an E. And there was no distinction on what that meant in any sort of geographic sense. Some people used the E, some people didn't. And in the in England and in the United States, you see instances of both spellings until sort of a certain time period in England. I don't remember the exact date. Again, this is, I wrote about it years ago on my, on my website. In England, they kind of settle out and the spelling of whiskey without an E sort of takes over in the like mid 17, early 1800s. I think. But in the U S the spelling keeps fluctuating back and forth. And, um, and there's no, meaning attached to one spelling or the other and uh only uh and so as as recent as ambrose beers and like mark twain you see them using both spellings interchangeably there's no they're not thinking like oh this spelling means this this spelling means that it's only until you get um style guides in like the 1950s that you start to get uh from newspapers Okay. Uh, you, that you start to get this segregation of like E means, you know, refers to like more American and without the E refers to this. And so it's a re- super modern invention that we say, oh, th- this is the way you spell whiskey for America and Irish. And this is the way you spell it for everybody else. <laughs> it's less than 70 years old. And only in the last, two decades 
have people really kind of solidified into this. Americans spelled this way, except if you're a brand who likes to spell it a different way. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, you know, like I, I can't remember. I think it's Maker's Mark. They don't spell whiskey with an E. It's just okay. a choice. And people used to read in all these like meanings into it and like, oh, they, it's because the owner felt like, you know, this whiskey was better than this other one. I'm like, there's no historical evidence really for any of that. Just huh. some people felt it one way and another. So it's a, that's all it is. But people were having these like really drawn out like fights about you should <laughs> only spell it this way if you're in this country and you should only spell it this way if you're in that country. And like... Well, just multiple words have multiple spellings sometimes. And whiskey is one of these in our English, American English, that we is sort of this holdover. Most other words we've sort of settled on a spelling. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that, that's <laughs> that cool. was a, yeah, it was kind of a fun thing to, to like dive into. Oh, that's good. Great explanation because it's so it just seems like, hey, there's no it doesn't there's no change in the meaning. Um, it's not yeah. made differently with different ingredients. It's kind of personal preference or where you are geographically and whatever the hell you feel. Yeah. Like and by and large, it, and you see this in repeated in, in the press, largely, they like to say, this means that, and that means that. And by and large, the U S and Ireland spell their whiskeys with an E and everybody else spells it without an E. <laughs> and it's only because whiskey developed as a word in the English language at this point when multiple words had multiple spelling. Yeah. Wow. Just like the spelling of like center could be T E R or T R E, right? Something like that. Right. Just, just through right. time. Just, it's probably yeah. someone drank enough whiskey that they ended up spelling it. They forgot to put the E in there and they were like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, man. Very cool. Um, so, you know, through your learnings and, and through time here, you know, uh, American craft whiskey, I mean, the quality is increasing dramatically year over year. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the flavor impact on a Miss American whiskey and bourbon, um, you know, barrel entry proof flavor profile, some of those things that you found. Yeah. So I, that's one of the things that I've noticed in the last few years, as you said, I think the overall quality of whiskey being made in America has greatly improved, both from the large companies as well as the craft distillers. The craft side, you you see that transition more dramatically. Um, but, you know, so even a few years ago when I wrote the Bourbon Bible, you know, I had samples of whiskeys from the same, some of the same companies that I reviewed for the Bourbon or for the Atlas, which just came out. And even in that short, like three-year time span, I've seen a dramatic change in the way some of them are making their whiskey. And some of that has to do with the fact that, well, six years ago, maybe when they were laying down whiskey, they were putting it in 10-gallon barrels. And now they're using 30-gallon barrels or full-size 53-gallon barrels. And so you notice a foot change in flavor profile, partly because um, a lot of uh, small distillers that um, started off a decade ago for economics and other reasons had, were using a lot of smaller barrels, but generally are sizing up. And so there's a flavor profile change that happens there. That's one thing. The other that I've noticed is that 
a lot more distillers uh, have been paying attention to barrel entry proof. And that was a thing that like three years ago when I wrote the Bourbon Bible, nobody really talked about. There was some information here and there about how Wild Turkey put their whiskey in at a lower barrel entry proof than, say, Heaven Hill. Mm-hmm. But not a lot of people, that wasn't a selling point. The main selling point that a lot of people talked about was like, oh, are uh, bourbons made with wheat as the secondary ingredient versus rye? And because of that, there's all these character qualities that you get from it. And the thing that I noticed when I tasted through 140-something bourbons in the span of a couple of months for that book was that the secondary ingredient can play a role, definitely for rye. But for weeded bourbons, one of the bigger impacts seemed to be barrel entry proof. The, a really easy example of that is taste Maker's Mark side-by-side side with Larson. Maker's Mark goes in at 110. Larceny goes in at 125. Vastly different. They're both weeded bourbons. The mash bills are slightly different, but they're pretty similar. And, uh, and there are other things like they're made, you know, with different yeasts. And so you can art, make arguments, but that barrel entry proof, you notice on the larceny, there's way more wood impact on the flavor right. of that whiskey than there is with Maker's Mark. And I think it, it's directly related to barrel entry proof. So that's something that I know more craft distillers have been looking at and playing with as one of those levers you can adjust of what your eventual flavor profile is going to be. And that, I think, is one of the exciting things about where American craft spirits is, is that they can experiment with these things. So like Blum Brothers is, a, is an example of this. I think they make some really nice bourbon. And for a while, they were uh, doing a low barrel entry proof because they sort of wanted to start with that. But then they slightly adjusted their barrel entry proof up a little bit because they felt like the balance of the flavor that they got over time was better. And so mm. that's something that I think is really, really interesting from the producer side is you can play with these things and and then you know, basically come to what is your preferred profile of, of a whiskey uh, that you want to put out into the world. So I think that's really, and I think that's something that the uh, whiskey uh, aficionados and people on the bourbon Reddit site and things like that, that group of people are definitely ready for producers to start talking about barrel entry proof. The vast okay. majority of the public, I don't know if they're there yet. I, you know, they're still trying to understand what the difference is between bourbon and rye whiskey. So, what do we say, Eric? Do you think that, like, the higher that the barrel, you know, the proof, the entry proof, the higher the entry proof, is that able to extract more flavors from the wood? So, what it does is it extracts different flavors. The main thing that happens when you're adjusting barrel entry proof is. So if a spirit goes in at 62.5%, right, what it's saying is 62.5% of that uh, liquid is alcohol and the rest is water. Mm -hmm. But if you drop it to 55% alcohol and the rest water, well, then you're going to adjust 
what water-soluble compounds you extract from the barrel and what alcohol-soluble compounds you extract from the wood because both exist. And when you change the ratio of alcohol to water as it goes into the barrel, you you change how much water-soluble versus alcohol-soluble compounds you extract from the wood. Okay. And so the tannins and the stronger oak-related sort of flavors that we mm-hmm. get from whiskey happen to be more alcohol-soluble, whereas things like vanilla and caramel flavors tend to be more water-soluble in whiskey or in from, from the barrel. So, so if you want to kind of amp up more vanilla flavors and more like softer caramels, you might want to try and have a lower barrel entry proof. But if you like those like stronger spice, like nutmeg, clove kind of things, and more wood character in your whiskey, you're going to want to put your whiskey in at a higher barrel entry proof to extract that. Now, the other sort of factor in this for distillers is economics, right? If you're filling your barrel at uh, uh, the legal limit, 125, well, you've maximized your barrel, you know, basically how much liquid you can fit into a barrel and then how many bottles you can eventually get out. So there's an economic consideration there as well as a flavor one. I know some distillers have really tiny spaces. They don't have room for lots of barrels. And so they're like, well, I just have to fill it at 125 because like if I do 110, like that's 13% more barrels that I have to buy. And so there's a you know space consideration and economic one that you know on the producer side, but you know when you're thinking about so there's a balance right any company that's involved in food space right has to kind of find come to this balance point for them a flavor that they're trying to sell and the economics of that production process so uh, on the business side you know there there are multiple considerations but on the pure flavor side that's sort of what's happening so let's stick on that you know kind of that economic side of this where you know some of these folks are kind of just starting up to and i wonder if that's why we're seeing that enhanced product nowadays right because a lot of these distilleries have they're having a little bit more time some of these smaller craft right they've been around a little longer so you know and obviously a lot of them are you know, they want to be a whiskey distillery, but they have to start with some gin and some vodka, right. To get some revenue coming in the door, right. Using rums, that sort of thing. Um, I've seen obviously a lot of the white whiskey that's out just because, Hey, they want to put something out while the other stuff's aging. Have you done any, you know, uh, testing or tasting of white whiskeys compared, you know, before they go into a barrel and kind of notice those characteristics or not really? Uh, some, um, so, Again, through my role at ADI with the competition, four years ago, five years ago, the largest segment of uh, craft whiskey that got entered was white whiskey. So basically zero age or maybe like a few days, a few months, maybe a year. So that was huge. And slowly over this past four or five years, that cohort has shifted up. So it started as white whiskey and then it's gradually gradually moved to like about a year, 
and then somewhere in the year to two year range. And now the vast majority of that whiskey being made and or being sold rather is in that two to five year old range. Um, And so that's partly because some of these companies have been around for longer. Um, And part of it is some of the strategies of when people are releasing their products have changed. So it wasn't uncommon five years ago to have a whiskey distillery um, start with white dog in the bottle and then slowly age it up. Uh, Woodenville whiskey up in Seattle region is a good, good example of that. That was a strategy that they took. They wanted, they didn't want to go the vodka gin sort of white spirit route in their sales. They wanted to stay focused on whiskey And so they did that. They sort of gradually aged up. And so now, like most of their stuff is in the four to six year old range that they're bottling because they have enough age stock. And it's really is really good bourbon and rye. Other companies, as you said, they kind of went the other route of of finding, you know, they needing cash flow. And so they'll sell vodka or they'll sell gin or they'll sell liqueurs. Um, And and people have been, you know, seem to have been successful with that route. Um, the one thing, again, as an outsider, as not a distillery owner, the one thing that I sort of think about is you look at not just not just the biggest companies, but some of the most successful in spirits, whether it's on the craft side or uh, on the larger brand side is that they specialize. So Johnny Walker makes whiskey, right? Uh, Oban makes whiskey. Beefeater makes gin, you know? So, you know, I, to me, I see the sort of historical carryover from craft beer where craft brewers would make everything under the sun, right? They'd make a lager, they'd make a pale ale, they'd make an IPA, they'd make a stout, they'd make a you know barley wine, right? They make all these styles. They're all beer, right? They're all barley, hops, right. water in various combinations. But spirits, it's a little bit different. And so you see certain states, like in Michigan, I believe, there's a incentive. You if you have a bar or restaurant at your distillery, you can only pour the liquor that you make. And so there's an incentive for them to make everything so Mm. that they can make cocktails at their bar or restaurant. But in other states, they don't have that, but you still see people doing multiple things. So I think to me, like on the business side, again, I think there's an interesting argument probably to be made that if you're interested in, in like really growing as a company, as a brand, specializing probably might be the better route to go, even though there are like cash flow considerations that take sure. into that. Yeah. So I think that's why like some of the newer entrants into the craft space, I think have smaller, I, again, this is a generalization. Some of them I'm seeing have smaller portfolios of what they're kind of coming out with right out of the gate than what we used to see where, you would have companies doing everything under liqueurs, flavored stuff and multiple gins and multiple this and that. I, I think there's a little bit less of that. Um, but partly I think while all of those things can be creative and interesting for you as a distiller, 
in the production process. For your customer, it's easier to kind of think of Woodenville whiskey makes whiskey. They make really good bourbon and rye. That's where I'm going to, I'm going to get, I know I'm going to get that from them. Or I'm going to go to Big Gin um, and buy gin from them because that's what they do. They specialize in that. Um, and so anyway, I think, I think there's something that there in the market in terms of seeing who's been really successful and whether success means growth in the brand or that they've sold to a larger company. Um, however you want to define that. And that's the thing that I, I picked up from Ralph Lorenzo, uh, the former owner of, um, Oh, what's the name of the distillery? Um, I'm forgetting, but anyway, they were in the Hudson Valley. They sold to uh, a Scottish company. Eventually they make the Hudson whiskey brand. Um, and that was his comment was you're going to have small distillers kind of grow into these very local companies, sort of regional companies, and then multi-regional companies. And some will expand into national brands, but it's, I think it's on a business side, it's, probably impractical to think that every craft distiller is going to become a national brand. Like, I don't know that there's right. the attention span for that. Um, among Tuttle town. Tuttle town. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you know, so it, again, that's a decision that a distillery or an owner has to make is like, what are they content with? Do they, is their goal to sell to a larger company if that's part of it, then focusing in on a single brand or product is probably going to be more successful. Yeah. If your goal is to just, you know, exist as a, a community space in your region, then maybe it makes more sense to be like New Holland uh, Distilling, where you have these restaurants that you're supplying with all your own liquor, right? Because you want your business model is focused around having people come to you. Um, rather than you mm -hmm. kind of, you know, expanding out, you know, and selling your stuff, you know, selling your orange liqueur in California or Tennessee. Right. And you get, right. you know, a, a six inches of a shelf space, you know. Right. So, and so you can find success in different business models. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's, you know, obviously that's one of the things people have to think about when they're entering into the space or they're kind of, they feel, you know, I've talked to some distillers that feel a little stuck. I'm like, well, was your business model kind of match what you want, what your goals are? Um, got to have a plan. Yeah. Failing to plan is planning to fail. And you got to have something to, you know, come back to and have a roadmap. Uh, make sure you're sticking on that. Mm -hmm. What is your go-to drink? You know, like kind of when do you, do you drink often? Like when do you drink? And, and, you know, is it kids go to bed and you want to sit down and, and write or sit down and read or just sit down and have a beverage? Like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. So, you know, my general uh, pattern is that I will have usually one, sometimes two, but generally one drink at the end of the day after the kids have gone to bed. And that decision varies uh, based on sort of the weather a lot. <laughs> um, I'm with you, man. Yeah. And so, you know, the season, uh, right? Like, yeah, the what's season. going on outside? Also, I noticed personally, you know, people don't tend to think about themselves being very uh, susceptible to uh, outside stimulus, like advertising, like advertising 
makes a lot of money because it works, right? People take in stuff. So I find yeah. that when I'm listening to certain things, like I have a bunch of podcasts I listen to or whatever, uh, or things that I read, like, I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't had that for a while. I really want to have something like that. Yeah. So like there's a podcast that I listen to about agave spirits and every once in a while I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't had any mezcal for a little while. I really yeah. want to take some. That sounds really good right now. Get a Paloma going on or something. Yeah. And then other times it's like, oh yeah, I was reading something about, you know, scotch. And I'm like, I could really go for some like peated uh, single malt. And so like I cracked open a bottle yeah. of them peated american single malt that i had waiting just sitting around I'm like well i might as well drink it now i mean so drink them if you got them you know yeah yeah you need that reminder it's it's subliminal messaging right yeah yeah and sometimes it's the weather and so sometimes it's hot and i just want a tall drink um and so i'll do like gin and soda or yeah. scotch and soda things like that other times i'm feeling a little bit more fancy maybe you know so i'll make myself a daiquiri okay. um you know, or a, a Manhattan if I happen to have fresh vermouth on hand. Okay. Um, so that, I mean, I, I, I'm i a big fan of spirits. So, you know, I drink a lot of bourbon, partly because it's relatively less expensive than yeah. for quality than other things. Sure. I also really like gin, but then, you know, gin's kind of a temperamental spirit for me like sometimes i'm feeling the juniper and sometimes i'm not so <laughs> yeah you know well gin i found gin so versatile too i mean you can have it you know a strong juniper flavor you know you have the you have the dry gin you have the sapphire you have you know different fruit combinations and um mm -hmm. different botanicals so i find that to be very versatile and uh I, i'm really starting to get into gin more and more yeah so that's i mean that's me i like i there are too many good spirits out in the world to kind of like peg myself into one box. Yeah. And so I, so like I said, I just kind of float on the whims of the weather and the seasons and you know, what comes to me and I'm like, yeah, I haven't had a good rum in a while. I'm going to yeah. drink some rum tonight. Hell so. yeah. Nice man. Cool. Well, Eric, this has been a lot of fun and I have so much more to talk to you about. We need to get part two rolling. Yeah. I just, I have to hop today and uh, no this problem. has been a lot of fun. And I would tell everybody, Hey, go out, check out Amazon. The new book just dropped. Um, that is the Atlas of bourbon and American whiskey uh, by Eric Zandona. He's got the tequila dictionary, the bourbon Bible. I want to dig into the forgotten spirits and long lost liqueurs. I feel like we could talk all day about that. Um, he's also written the distiller's guide to rum, the craft of gin um, you, uh, also did the world guide to whiskey distillers with distilleries with the, uh, the E in, in parentheses, just, you know, which we <laughs> talked about today. Yeah. So awesome. Well, Eric, I appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Um, cheers. And, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you. right that'll do it for today's episode appreciate you tuning in i hope you learned something i hope you really enjoyed it and if so tell a friend leave that five-star rating i mentioned earlier and comment on apple podcasts subscribe on any platform spread it around the world let's make it happen i appreciate y'all cheers and beer mighty things <laughs>